So a few years ago, I was invited by another evangelist to go on to Camp Pendleton. This guy is a retired Marine. Some of you know him. And he, he in his retiring from the Marine Corps, is something high-ranking. I don't know the Marine ranks. I, all military services are categorized in Navy ranks because those, that's the right way, the right ranking <laughs> to me. And, uh, and so he was like a, an E7, a senior chief in the Navy, whatever that is in the Marine Corps. And, and he begins by sharing like a core values class. It's a, it's a Marine course. He gets all of the infantry men together. So we're talking like two or 400 guys on these bleachers on this middle of this big compound. And he begins to share from military history about basically why the Marine Corps is the best and, and within the Marine Corps, how the infantrymen are the best of the best and how they do everything hard and they're tough and all of it, yada, yada, yada stuff, you know? And so, and then from there, he invites the guys to, to a, a private Bible study uh, designed for Marines. It's a voluntary thing. He does this every Sunday, twice a day. And so I went there this day. I thought I would be just kind of hanging out in the background. And he makes me stand right next to him, which was okay. But then he goes on and he doesn't introduce me as a pastor. He introduces me as a former Navy SEAL, which is okay. He then continued that he is of the warrior class. He's just like us. And all of this this respect for how I'm as good as they are because I was a Navy SEAL, that they would wave their, their, their bar and let me into the club. And around this time, it got very cold. And rain, like I've never seen in San Diego, starts falling. Bitter, bitter, wet, cold. I mean wet, like down south where you're drenched. And I'm standing there thinking to myself, I just want to run to his pickup truck and turn on the heater and sit there. But he's just, he's talked up the Navy. And for me to walk away to take cover is to the whole SEAL team reputation is on the line. And so I sat there and shivered and thought, this is miserable. This is miserable. These guys are so dumb. They're just going to sit here in the rain instead of like going to this room that's over there. Finally, they went to the room for the Bible study part. And while he was there, he began by sharing his faith. Of, of this 400 guys, probably half came. I, I got the impression that the guys who came were mostly of a Christian background. They were mostly of a faith background. These are uh, men from around the country who are from the church. This was an opportunity to, uh, uh, to have a sort of devotional time uh, with this senior guy while they were going through their training. And he started out... His talk, after introducing himself and his credentials from the Christian standpoint, he asked them a question that was close to this. And he said, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you are absolutely sure with 100% certainty that you would go to heaven when you die? Or do you feel that you're somewhere along the way in your spiritual journey? And so he kind of like, he actually made them raise their hands. Like it wasn't like a, a question to answer on the inside. He said, well, how many of you are hundred percent sure? And of this group of uh, two or 300 guys, maybe 10 or 20% raised their hands that they were hundred percent sure. Then he said, well, how many of you are somewhere along the line that you're not sure? And pretty much all of them raised their hands. And then he went on to kind of share the gospel in a very easy to understand way. And it was really, it was really a blessing for me to participate. 
but I'll never forget the, the ride home with him. And he said, I come here week in and week out, and I have a cross-section of, of people from the United States Christian Church, and 90% of them don't have certainty of their position with God. And the more I think about it and compare my own Christian life and my journey to where I am today, I didn't have a lot of assurance uh, when I first came back to, to kind of be with the Lord and start doing the whole, whole church thing. I was at a church where the gospel was presented every single week. And I think I accepted the Lord every single Sunday for about a year and a half. And it wasn't until Bible college that I learned like, hey, you know, the Bible says, you know, it's like a one-time thing. You don't have to, I'm like, what do you mean? I do it every Sunday. Because like, you know, sometimes between Sunday and the next Sunday, some stuff happens <laughs> that I'm struggling with. So I got to like start over. Because when I get in trouble with the military, you like fail, you go back to the beginning, you got to start over. And certainly the Christian life is the same way. And they're like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. And the point is, is that First John, this letter that we've been working through, is part two. It's the second installment of the Apostle John's writing. The Gospel of John, his first writing, the, the whole point of that letter is to lead people to belief in Christ that they would have eternal life. As we come to 1 John, he's following up with that letter to assure people of their position in Christ, that they can know that they have life eternal. He uses that phrase to know over and over and over again. We're getting close to the end. Next week, we end 1 John. And in these last two sections, he's really hammering home the crux that believing in Jesus is eternal life. I hope that we leave here today for those of us who have trusted in Christ that we would have assurance knowing that our salvation is secure based on his work. He knows that false teachers were coming in. They were bringing in heresies. They were guys that were within the truth and they were steering people away from the the, the grace of God. They were questioning where they stood and he wants nothing more than to assure them of their position with Christ. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So the, the main point where he's driving at is this born of God. This eternal life as he describes in other places. He says that you can be born of God and he limits it. He says, well, first he says, whoever. This whoever is limited by those who believe, those who trust that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus in Christ is not Jesus's first and last name. Jesus is his name and his title is Christ. That's the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. That he was the promised one that they'd been waiting for. And by believing in him, you're born of God. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 3 as Nicodemus, this high priest, comes to ask Jesus questions in the middle of the night. He begins to explain to him, and he says, listen, you've got to be born again. And this old man who was leader of the Sanhedrin, this great teacher, says, I'm an old man. What am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? How is this possible? And Jesus looks at him and he says, how can you be a spiritual leader of Israel and fail to see this most basic premise of what God wants you to communicate, that God wants to have a relationship with you, with people. And in order to have this relationship, you must be born spiritually. 
And then we come to the great verse that you see it football games and all around. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever. Did I say something wrong? Oh, I know. Okay, I'm like, oh, I'm so bad with Bible memory. If I hear anybody whispering, I'm like, oh, I blew it. I'm like way off. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so Jesus makes this. He's the one who said John three sixteen. And I want us to turn back to, to John chapter 20. This is John's previous writing from the first word in the gospel of John to the last word. Every word must be understood through these two verses. These are the verses that give the author's purpose statement. They explain the reason for his writing. And in John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John was a disciple of Jesus. Some have said that he was probably Jesus's best earthly friend. He was like his kid brother. He was a part of the inner three within within the disciples. There were three Peter, James and John that were that were allowed special access into things that Jesus did. He's the one who's writing this book. He said, you know what? Jesus did all sorts of signs, which are miracles in our presence. He, he did all sorts of stuff, but I didn't write about all of them. I only wrote about these. And the reason that I wrote about these signs, verse 31, but these have been written so that you, that includes you sitting here today. That includes me. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, Christian, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. So often we think, oh, I, well, nobody says I can't wait to die. That's just the reality. But the, but we have it in our mind that when we die, we get eternal life. The Bible says that when we believe we have eternal life, it's given to us. And if you have eternal life and you go weak and you make a mistake, you make a sin and you were to lose your salvation, how eternal is that life that you received? Not very eternal. Let's just say that you're really good and you have a good track record and you make it 60 years. But then at your 60 years, you do something and you lose your salvation. Well, even 60 years, that seems like a long time by human standards. That's still not eternal. Eternal is eternal. Eternity. It blows my mind when I start thinking in eternity past, eternity future. Our brain seizes, or mine does. You guys are all smarter than me, but I can't, I can't even fathom that. So when we believe in Christ, the eternal one, the Messiah, the one who is the creator and sustainer of the world, the one who came, who lived the perfect life, and on the cross... The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. This word through 1 John, we can turn back there. He consistently says that he's the propitiation for our sins. This is a fancy word which simply means satisfaction. That on the cross, when he was paying the penalty for my sin, for your sin, he satisfied God's wrath that was due us as we believe upon him. And so in verse one, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is born of God. We become children of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. 
Here he, he ties Jesus and the Father, the Godhead. You, you cannot divorce Jesus from the Father. If you love the Father, then you love the Son. We live in a culture where most Americans, I forget who did the study, but I think it's like 90-something percent believe that there's a heaven. That same uh, group of people, uh, it's almost opposite, it's like 90% don't believe in hell. We believe in heaven as a culture at large, and we all sort of believe that we're going to be there. And very few of us think that getting to heaven is tied to Jesus at all. But John here, first, whoever believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father, which is all through this book, that last section, I think it was 27 times in the last 20 verses that he used this term love. That whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. That's Christ. That they're tied together. You can't have one without the other. And then he says, for this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Looking at these verses, I preparing and reading and, and getting ready for today. I think, oh man, I'm going to be a broken record. I'm like a one hit wonder. You know, you got one song that makes the top 20 and you just play it over and over again. But you know, no other songs from this band. John, his message is so simple, but he's so redundant over and over and over and over again. He talks to us like we're 30 year olds and I love it. I love it. It's so simple. He says, believe upon Jesus. There's eternal life. Obey his commands. That's number two. And love one another till his deathbed. This was his message. You are children of God. Love one another. And I love how he tacks on this last phrase. His commandments are not burdensome. I was the guy for many years who resisted Christianity. I was raised in the Catholic church. I thought I had my understanding of what the message about Christianity was. I thought it was a bunch of rules and do's and do nots. And and your relationship with God was based on doing certain things and not doing other things. And if you didn't do some things and you did other things, then God's love for you increased and you would pass the test at your death so that you could go to heaven. And I would often, my friends who well-intentioned would come to me and say, Gunnar, will you go to church? Can I tell you about Jesus? I've heard it all before. I was raised in the church. I don't want to know. I know it all. I don't care. I'm done with it. I want to live my life and have fun. I don't want to be bogged down with a bunch of rules. And then that plan landed me in all kinds of trouble. (laughs) Resisting evading arrest, losing my security clearance. My whole world was tumbling. I finally reached this point in my life going, okay, this isn't working out. Maybe I need to pull out this rabbit's foot, this good luck charm, and go to Jesus, and maybe that'll help in my desperation. And I began to go to a church where the Bible was taught, and I started to see the message of the gospel, that it wasn't about religion. It was this, these crazy evangelicals start harping on this relationship thing. And I knew what the right answer was, and so I kind of went along with it. But I would be kept up at night going, what is this relationship? What do they mean, relationship with Jesus? The dude died a long time ago. Like, how do we maintain this relationship? And then it sort of dawned on me, like, no, Lord, you're alive. You're real. You want my heart. And then as I believed and I slowly started walking with him and growing over the course of many years, I started to realize 
that his commandments weren't burdensome. They were life-giving. That the life I enjoy now is in large part to me living in a way that's honoring to him. His rules here weren't to hurt me. They were to help me. I don't get all mad driving down the road when there's a 90-degree turn on a, on a roadway that goes 70 miles an hour. And it says, hey, caution, 90-degree turn. You need to slow down to 15 miles. I don't get, why are you giving all these rules? When I'm not paying attention to going to Anna's grandpa's house, I can't tell you how many times I've almost plowed through that sign. The sign, the, they're there to protect you. And then as I walk with him, as I honor his commands, as I do, and I'm not perfect, none of us are. But when, I've, when I am able to like follow his instructions, man, there's so much fruit that comes into my life. That's joy. It's just joy. And now I laugh when people find out that Gunner's a pastor. Well, normally it's like, Gunner's a Christian? It's like, yeah, I'm even a pastor. They find it funny. And I start, the, the one thing I've said over the years is, man, I thought I knew how to have fun back then. I didn't start having fun until I trusted in Christ and started living according to his ways. Man, I have fun. I can't tell you how awesome it is not to wake up with a hangover and a bunch of receipts that I don't know where these receipts came from. That hasn't happened to me in like weeks. I mean, months, years. It's been a long time. Like honoring him is good. It's not burdensome. Moving on to the next section, we're going to see something that some verses that it talks about overcoming the world. In the previous chapter, in verse 4, we read, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This next section is going to start talking about this overcoming the world, and it's so easy for TV pastors and scam artists and evangelists to say that if you just trust in Jesus, your life's going to get better. Just Send in some money by faith and I guarantee you it's going to be shaken up and it's going to be like casting bread out on the water and God's going to do wonderful things after you give money to us. Your relationships are going to be restored and everything's going to go happy, go lucky. And they pull from verses that we're about to see this. But there's a problem here. If we look at it historically in context, let's read these verses. Verse four, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Now, in these verses, we see this phrase overcomes the world three times. And if we follow this overcoming the world with the statements, the first one, though, the one, whatever is born of God. Well, we've just saw in verse one that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. So the one who believes, whoever's born of God, the one who believed in Jesus, they've overcome the world. And this victory and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Okay, what's this victory that has overcome the world? And it says faith. Faith is the one that helped overcome the world. And then who is the one that overcomes the world in the New American Standard? I would probably put the question mark there for clarity. It asks the question, who is the one who's overcome the world? And then it's answered, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So the one who's believed in Jesus, the one that's born of God, the one who has faith in this, the one 
who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. These, this person is the one who's overcome the world. And I think, well, that sure sounds great, John. So you're telling me that if you believe in Jesus, if you become a Christian and you give your life to him, then you're going to get married, you're going to have 2.5 children, you're going to have a white picket fence, and everything's going to go great. This is what a lot of people think Christianity is. But the reality is, is if you follow Christianity around the world, those who profess Christ often are kicked out of their family, are killed for their faith, are, are banished from society. It's really bad. In our culture, it's not as overt, but if you're from a, a really a non-Christian family and you give your life to the Lord and you really start loving him and living by what he tells you, you're going to be sort of ostracized in your family, in your workplace, because our world doesn't think like the Bible works. We're going to be cutting against the grain. Even when I look at this guy, I say, well, who's John? Let's kind of back up to context. We know that at the time of his writing, he's about 95 years old. He's the only living apostle who walked and talked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus. Everybody else had been killed. And that thought sort of got me thinking. And, and I want to read some of the, about the lives of some of the people who walked after Jesus, the apostles and guys from the early church, and sort of how their lives ended. So John writes this following the events that I'm all going to I'm going to read Matthew, the guy who wrote the gospel of Matthew. He suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. The gospel of Mark, this Mark, he died in Alexandria, Egypt, dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke, the gospel of Luke, the great physician who researched and wrote the gospel of Luke in Acts. He was hanged in Greece as a result of his tremendous preaching to the lost. Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross, according to church tradition, because he told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to die the same way that Jesus Christ had died. James the Just, the leader of the church in Jerusalem and brother of Jesus, was thrown down more than 100 feet from the southeast pinnacle of the temple. When he refused to deny his faith in Christ, when they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat James to death with a fuller's club. James the greater. This is of the son of Zebedee. This is the brother of the author that we read. This is the apostle John's brother, James. The greater was ultimately beheaded at Jerusalem. Bartholomew, he was whipped to death for his preaching in Armenia. Thomas was speared and died on one of his many missionary trips. Jude, another brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows after refusing to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot, was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas, one of the group of the 70 disciples, was stoned to death at Salonica. Paul, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, was tortured and then beheaded by the evil emperor Nero at Rome in AD 67. John, our author, was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil during a wave of persecution in Rome. However, he miraculously was miraculously delivered from death. This man that's writing, 
Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. This victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world but the one that believes Jesus is the son of God as I imagine him writing. This is a man dropped into a boiling vat of oil. This is horrific burns. This this is before uh, skin grafting. His hair would have been seared all the way off. His skin would have been so marred that most of us won't even want to look at him face to face. He would be in total agony with moving if you've ever seen any sort of burn victim. And yet he writes from this position, we've overcome the world in Christ. What are you talking about, dude? I'm sorry, that's my Southern California. What are you, th- what are you saying? Would be the more proper way to say it. And if we follow this word, if we expand, this word overcomes. Where else do we see it in the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. If you'll turn with me back to Romans chapter 8. Romans is this great theological work of the Apostle Paul who was beheaded under Nero. This was a man who was greatly persecuted by the church. It's been said that Romans could be be understood by a three-year-old and a theologian can drown in it. It's a great book. We're going to start it in January. And this is what we're going to basically work our way through in 2013 is the, the book of Romans. I hope that will grow. We're going to go to 837, but I want to ease into it a little bit. As he gets to verse 37, he points to Christ who suffered and says, if he suffered and died, we follow him. Don't you think we might suffer a little persecution? And he eases to verse 37 and he says this. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly conquered. This is that word overcomes. This word would be used when an army came through and pillaged a town and destroyed everything, took all of their their valuables. They would take those that survived into slavery. And as they went back to their home, they would, they would tie the people up and they would march them into their city naked. It would be the ultimate conquering that there was no room for any sort of wiggle room. They were conquered. They were publicly shamed as they were brought in. And the word here he uses, not just conquer, not just overcomes, but he attaches a word in the Greek that says overwhelmingly, hyper, extremely conquered in the midst of this persecution. In all these things, the, the things are persecution that believers in Christ are being killed, burned at the stake, thrown into the lions, horrible things. We have our copies of scriptures because so many saints have gone before us and given their lives to assure that we have the word of God in our hands. Gives me goosebumps. But in all these things, we over we overwhelmingly conquer through him. That's Christ who loved us. This guy, John, who's scarred up and says we are conquerors of the world. As a young man, if you follow him through the Gospels, he was an arrogant elitist. The guy that as he was trying to go through Samaria, they said, you can't come through here. You can't spend the night because you're Jewish. He runs to Jesus, says, hey, Jesus, they won't let us through because we're Jews because we're Jews. 
Can I pray the, pray the atomic bomb prayer and bring fire from heaven down and turn them into glass? This apostle of love that we know. He's the same guy that says, Jesus, I want to ask you something. I want you to do anything that I ask of you. Jesus, with a smug smile on his face, said, man, John, I love you so much. Let me hear you out. What's your request? And he says, when you're in all your glory, can you put my brother on your left and me on your right so we can be right there with you? What happened in his life? He was transformed through the understanding of how much God loved him. That the more he lived his life, the more he came to understand how unlovable he was. And yet this God who created all things loved him so, so much. And the more he meditated and pondered this concept of God loving him, he, at the end of his life, didn't even, when he wrote his letters, didn't want to put his name there. He only referred to himself as a man whom Christ loved. He was transformed. Paul says the same thing. We conquer through Jesus who loves us. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I look around as I'm facing my death. I don't know when it's going to come. It's like, I know that God loves me and I'm secure there. There's assurance of my hope for eternity because it's based on the love of Christ and what he did for me. And we can say we not fear not cancer. We fear not a car accident. We fear not whatever our possible future demise will be. We can say with Paul in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ once you've believed. This is powerful stuff. And we go back to first John. Chapter 5. And in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, he speaks on this overcoming the world, that we have become conquerors of the world. That doesn't mean that he has 2.5 children, a white picket fence, and that everything's going lovely for him. This is a man who writes with terrible scars extreme pain people that saw him could barely look at him this man that they would pick up and they would bring to the front of the church and what he would say to the church if he was here today i am confident that what he would say to us is your children of god love one another that was his message at the end and he says that we have overcome the world and as he turns to these next few verses that can be difficult for a number of reasons I've struggled all week in how to handle verses 6 through 8. If we were watching a movie, we would be watching a courtroom scene. John has just said that Jesus is the way to eternal life, that believing in him, you become a child of God. As you become a child of God, you begin, you love God, you obey his commands, and then you'll start loving one another who are children of God. He says that we're overwhelmingly conquerors. And as he makes his case, if this was a legal drama on a, on a movie, all of a sudden somebody would open up the back room door and sit down and the, the, the attorney would say, I'd like to call so-and-so up to the witness stand. Everybody, <gasps> what are they going to say? The opposing attorney would run up to the bench and say, well, this hasn't been entered into evidence. Who is this? Who are you bringing to the stand? Well, John is bringing God to the stand. And he says in verse 6, This is the one who came by water 
and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with the blood. It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the, uh, the, spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. This is the part I wrestle with. Every, every time when I come to a section of scripture, see, I'm compelled to teach the word of God here. And I recognize that there are, when there are difficulties in the text, there are like three people who are always interested in these, the, the, unpacking the difficulties. And everybody else kind of is like, ah, man, we can just get to the main point. So I always wrestle with, how do I address this to like keep everybody happy and be faithful to my calling? There, there are three that are called to the witness stand. It's, we're told the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, if you're reading out the King James or the New King James, you'll, you'll see more of a, say, I deleted it from my notes because I'm like, Gunner, don't go there. Don't, don't get everybody lost. But you'll see a, a testimony from the, the Trinity. You'll see more of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son that they testify. So if you have a King James, you'll see that. Now, is he speaking of, 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 of the testimony of the Trinity? Now, if we follow church history and how we got the Bible, the Bible was transmitted to us in Hebrew and Greek. But language is a changing language. There's always difficulty when you go from one language to another language. It's even more difficult when you go from one language in a culture 2,000 years ago to another language in a different culture some 2,000 years in the future. And so as the Bible was developing, that we reached the point where Latin was a dominant language. The scriptures were then in the Latin. And when they translated into the Latin, the translators took this and they allegorized it, meaning they say, well, we see the Trinity here. So we'll translate it Father, it was the Spirit, Father, and Son to show the Trinity, which is not, we don't see the Trinity anywhere in the scriptures. You see evidence of it, but you don't see the word Trinity is what I'm trying to say. And so when the King James, the translator of the King James Bible, who wanted to put the King James into a very user-friendly text, when he caught to this section, he wanted to do it like the rest of the other translations. He wanted to go back to the Greek manuscripts and he wanted to use uh, father or spirit, water, and blood. However, there was great political pressure on him to maintain the the same usage of the word. And most say that he sort of conceded because of these, the political pressure and the bottom line is he, like any author, they want to sell books. And so it would have, it played better for him to keep the translation the same from the allegorized version. And there's evidence from older manuscripts, but when modern translators come and we research all of the older manuscripts, the evidence for the earlier manuscripts, the ones that are older from our perspective is we see the spirit, water, and blood. And so I'm going to stop there. If I've caused you enough interest, you can do your own study. But for the rest of you, you can sigh. We'll move on. My understanding of this, and there are many, this is very delicate ground. I hold everything with open hands. Most, the majority today would say that the spirit is the testimony of the resurrection of Christ from the grave. That it was the spirit of God that raised him from death. Water is understood in two predominant ways. First, the birth of Jesus, that when a baby is born, their water breaks and the baby enters the world through the water, speaking of his humanity. The second opinion on the water, and I have no idea which one's right, 
I'm just letting you know. The second one would be at the baptism of Jesus when he started his earthly ministry. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and when he came up from the water, what happened? The Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son. I think he said, In whom I'm well pleased. Oh, listen to what he says, essentially, Gunner's translation. So it could be his birth or it could be his baptism. Then the blood is the cross. Nobody, nobody denies the cross. That on the cross, he was our propitiation, our satisfaction. He being the perfect offering was able to satisfy the wrath that was due us. I think the big picture, I don't want to get lost in who are these three. Because the three, I think the bottom line is it's God is testifying and we get this from verse 9 it says if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for the testimony of god is this that he has testified concerning his son so as he says these three then he says hey if you believe what man says god trumps what man says because god is god god created everything god created you god did everything so when god speaks we humble ourselves and we listen And this is essentially what John's saying. We're going to skip over verse 10. I'm going to come back to verse 10. And in verse 11, continuing this testimony that he has testified concerning his son, verse 11, the point, let's not get lost in the previous stuff. The testimony is this. Okay, John, as you speak about Christ and believing in him and having been born of God, you're telling us that God has taken a stand and now he's giving his testimony. And this is his testimony that God has given us temporary life. No eternal life. And this life is in his son. And verse 12, when I was in the Navy, I just become a a baby believer. God gave me a a friend in in my platoon. Uh, I won't say his name, but he's been at SEAL Team 6 since whenever. But he was raised a missionary kid. And so he was like my friend that taught me that, hey, it's okay to like read the Bible in public. I was, I was going to the bathroom and like shutting the door, whipping out my Bible and reading in there. And I walk into space and there's, there's my friend with his Bible wide open. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You can't read that in here. He's like, what are you talking about, man? He's like dry firing his weapon, reading his Bible, practicing the guitar so he could lead worship. I'm like, you're crazy. You're like the, you're like a living example of David. And so then through him, I was like, Okay, he can do it. I'm going to read my Bible out in the public, in the platoon space. So I would sit and I would just open my Bible. I couldn't read anything because I was so terrified. Like, man, what are they about to do? Are they about to come, like, give me a swirly in the toilet? Or are they going to, like, what are they? I, so I would just, for like a, that year, I just opened my Bible in public because I was too scared to read it. And one of the things we did on that deployment, because we couldn't go to church. We were never around church. We were never around chaplains. We weren't around anything. He said, hey, let's do a... Uh, let's do a navigator's course. And if you don't know anything about the navigators, there's one thing the navigators believe in, and that's memorizing the Bible. So convicted whenever I get around navigators because I'm horrible at memorizing the Bible. Terribly convicted coming to this verse because this is one of the first verses that I memorized. And I love it because it's geared towards a three-year-old and I'm at that level. And it says simply, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. That's easy peasy. I got it. You have this son, you have this eternal life. You don't have this son, you don't have this life. This is to my daughter. You eat your vegetables, you can eat a cookie. You don't eat your vegetables, you don't get a cookie. Every Wednesday night when we come to Bible study, Miss Pat brings cookies. 
She's got to eat her bean burrito because Wednesday night are bean burrito nights before our family. We eat our bean burritos. My little daughter Elizabeth just has a hard time eating. She'll eat like three bites at home. Then she'll pack her burrito to church and she'll nibble it because she knows I don't eat the burrito. No cookie for me. And then she eats her burrito and she gets a cookie. You have the son. You have Jesus. You have life. You don't have him. You don't have life. It's simple. Yet we don't like this message. Somehow the love of God has become terribly offensive to us. If you guys leave with anything today, to all of us, I want you to know that in Christ, you're absolutely secure. All of us are marching towards our death. And I'm not here to scare anybody. It's just if you're human, it's reality. The older you get, the more stuff you get faced with. I think I've heard so many like famous people saying, hey, when it comes to cancer, you've either gotten the message or you're going to get the message that one day you're going to go to the doctor's office. They're going to call you and say, we need you to come in and we need to talk to you. It can be horrifying because this is all we know. It could be a car accident. I think doing law enforcement chaplaincy has jaded me because I realize how fragile life is and every day is a gift. And how do you know that when you die, that you're going to be okay? Verse 12, if you have Jesus, you're okay. You're okay. All the Bible asks of us, what John has continually said is, believe in him. In him, there's eternal life. And once you believe in him, you'll come to know God's love. And as you know God's love, you'll desire to obey his commandments. Not to earn your way to heaven, not to try to appease God. It's, it's simply because you've come to know his love and you see that he cares for you, that he's good. And then you start honoring him. Then he changes how you feel about others. Then those who have trusted in Christ are like your brothers and sisters. And there's this deep love that starts overflowing. And if you don't have that stuff, do you have Jesus? And then once you have Jesus, if you're in Christ, know that your security, your salvation is bound totally in him. That great him. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He didn't just do 80% and it's up to you to cover the 20%. He paid it all. You have life in him. And going back to verse 10, which I skipped over, and to give you guys a little hope, I'm two-thirds of the way through the conclusion. We are in the ending to get Ben back for harassing me. So if you've believed in Christ, you've received the spirit of God, you're secure to the day of redemption. You have life now, eternal. Now. And verse 10 says, the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. God is declaring to us that Jesus is the Messiah. And then when we believe, we receive his spirit and God transforms us. And for those of you that don't know me, I was raised in an extremely abusive home. My mother beat us ruthlessly. I, she, was, she was an alcoholic. She was also very religious. So often in her drunken rages, she was speaking in tongues and doing all kinds of crazy stuff that was horrifying to us. 
that explains a lot about me. But then in becoming a Christian, I always get this sort of, hey, Gunner, like if God's there and he's so loving, then how did you go through? How, how do you explain all this bad? And I don't know that I have the answer for that, but uh, like, why'd you bring it up? Well, glad you asked. <laughs> go, to, go to Acts chapter 17. This is how I understand my life. Uh, in all of your lives, <laughs> all of us are in this umbrella. And I would say that if you were raised in the church and you accepted Christ, your testimony is just as powerful because you were saved from stuff like I was saved out of stuff. But I've been, I've been dialoguing with this cop. He's, he wants to become a believer. He wants to accept Christ, but he's got all of these questions. He asked me hard questions about from the creation of the earth to all stuff. He's like, just right there. And, and this passage, I often, we go to and we talk through this. And here, the, the context is, Paul the Apostle has gone out. He's gone to Greek with all these great philosophers. As he enters into this, this location, there's this place called Mars Hill. It's where all the philosophers share their ideas, their thoughts. As Paul gets there, he noticed that there's an idol that is unidentified. It just says, to the unknown God. And Paul reasons from that point of reference. Hey, I saw you guys had this unknown God. I know that unknown God, and I want to tell you about him. And he said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He goes back to Adam. He said, from Adam, all humanity came. That includes you. That includes me. Having determined there are appointed times in the boundaries of their habitation, so Paul begins to explain that every person from Adam to present day, it's no accident the year that you were born. It's no accident that the location that you were born, you were intentionally placed on this earth at the specific time that you came, that you were born to the time that you die. And in your geographical location, some of us have traveled around the world. Other of us have never left Valley Center. But whatever your boundaries are, whatever your time, we're told that God has appointed these circumstances for us. Verse 27, that they, that we, that all of us would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul uses this word grope. John introduces his letter of first John that we have seen, we have heard, we have touched That word touched is the word grope. It's the word that would describe a blind person who can't see that sees with their hands. Have you ever met a blind person? I love meeting blind person. We used to have, well, she's still here, but I think she's not as aggressive with her hands anymore. Cynthia, right? Is her name? She can't see. I mean, or maybe she can see loosely, but when she'd come up to you, she'd just like start getting all excited and waving her hands. And then I realized that what she wanted is she's asking permission she can't speak. She can't see. I, she can hear. And she wanted to touch my face. And so then she's like touching my face and squeezing my nose and grabbing my ears and filling my chin. And kind of, I'm like, well, easy, easy. You know, like this awkward. This is kind of, but she's just so excited. That action of a blind person is this word grope. So I take from this. My whole life isn't an accident. I might have been a surprise to my parents, but I wasn't to God. 
And the whole situation, everything that I've gone through in this life, everything that you've gone through, everything you've experienced, this is your sweet spot for finding God. God has placed you. He wants you to come to know him. He wants to have this fellowship, koinonia, this intimate relationship. So he's placed all of these situations, all of these annoying people in your life that keep telling you about Jesus because he wants you to find him. He's not far from you. And then once we accept him, as verse 10 says, that then we have this testimony in us. Once you've tasted, once you've experienced this relationship, over the course of time, you can't help but then to, to share the good news. The Bible tells us that, that it's crazy. I don't know what God was thinking. I'm going to talk to him and say, hey, like, what were you thinking using people to be your ambassadors? <laughs> and he, like Job, he's going to look at me and say, Gunnar, where were you when I put the stars in the heaven? And the, I wasn't, I, I don't know. You'd have to tell me. Don't worry, son. I got it under control. <laughs> Trust me. I know what I'm doing. But we're told that as we receive Christ, he then commissions us to share the good news. And so I thank God for annoying Christians, especially my dear friend, Jr., that nagged me over and over and over again to go to church. Because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't know this great relationship that I have with Christ. And I hope that each one of us will walk from here assured that we have confidence with him in Christ. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you that our sins are paid for totally and completely. Lord, help us in our understanding of this great gift. Lord, we're so wired to think that salvation is bound in good works. We can't comprehend such a love. That Christ would come in bodily form as a human. That he would be our example. That he would obey the law fully without sin. That he would go to the cross for my sin. That he would be the satisfaction of the wrath that is due me for all my sin and iniquities. And that you simply want us to know you. To have this relationship with you, Father. So, Lord, I pray for each one of us, Lord, wherever we are in this spiritual journey, if we are, if we haven't come to a place where we believed in Christ alone for salvation, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of these, those peoples, Lord, that you'd speak to their minds, that it would make the 18-inch drop to their heart, Lord, that they would get it, that they would believe upon Christ for salvation. And, Father, for those of us who have believed, Lord, I ask that you would help us to abide in you, to walk with you, to, to come to terms even in a small glimpse of how great your love is. That we've overwhelmingly conquered the world through this love. To know the great truth that Paul writes of that nothing, not death, not cancer, not our shortcomings, nothing can separate us from your love. And Father, as we experience this love, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to share your love with those around us. Father, we are so grateful. We are in awe of you. We give you all the thanks and all the glory. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.